Hello, church, and if you would open to John 18, John chapter 18, Uh, we will reread some of the portion that we have been studying, but we will focus in almost exclusively on verse 11, but let's go back to verse 1 and get our context. Scripture says that when Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some of the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. And said to them, who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. He said to them, I am he. Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. And he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? That the Father has given me. And so Father, our, our request is simple. And I'll just ask one thing. We'll ask one thing right now. Is that you would open up for us and give us understanding. This cup that you gave to your son to drink. And would you change us as we understand these things. We pray it in Jesus name. Amen. Well, um, I, I just want to, on sermons like this, it's helpful to just give the warning right at the beginning. It's going to be intense, uh, this topic. I mean, how can you, how can it not be uh, with what, what we're talking about, um, studying the Gethsemane scene? Um, if, if it's not, then I would say I'm not really preaching the passage. I'm not really putting us in this text. Judas has kissed Uh, Christ to betray him, the arrest is occurring, Uh, and then what he says, what Christ says about the cup um, is the height of that intensity and weightiness. Y'all know that uh, Ecclesiastes talks about how there's a time for everything under the sun. So there's a time to go to the beach and laugh and watch a comedy, and then there's a time to sit in silence and sober your mind and think about something extremely serious. And that's this time uh, right now. And that's life too. I mean, this, we don't ask for this. Sometimes it just falls upon us. On Tuesday was, was one of these very sober, sombering days. Y'all know what happened on Tuesday? Uh, two significant things uh, in Texas in an elementary school. 21 were killed, including 19 children uh, from a young teenage shooter. 
Uh, everybody was outraged, especially the parents, uh, not only wanting justice against the shooter, but anybody else who was at fault. And, and we just feel the need for justice in a situation like that. And that same day on Tuesday, earlier that morning, much earlier that morning, uh, while it was still dark, there was a woman in this city who was getting ready to go to the gym. And she was trying to be disciplined and healthy, and she's getting there early. And this is actually a gym that I used to work, our family worked out at. We put our kids in the nursery many times. Some of you here in this room work out at this particular gym. It's only a few miles from here. And uh, as she was going to the gym, her ex-boyfriend was loading up his gun and preparing to go end her life, which he did at 4.30, walked into that gym and shot her. These are unspeakably evil injustices. And I use that word injustice very intentionally Because all killing is not injustice. Um, You know, when two warring nations are shooting back and forth at each other and someone dies, that's a casualty of war. It's not injustice. Uh, When two people are angry at each other and they both hate each other and they're fighting and one of them dies, that's not injustice. Uh, Injustice is when someone who is innocent dies at the hands of the guilty. That's injustice and you feel it. It feels different. It should feel different. We we are made to feel outrage when there's injustice. So when we look at the gym incident that I just mentioned, what's injustice? Well, she's just working out. And he comes for her. What's injustice about the school incident? These are elementary school kids just going to school. And he comes for them. We, we feel the injustice of this when, because deep down we know innocent people shouldn't die at the hands of the guilty. It's not how it works. It's absolutely backwards. And so what do we think when we look in this garden and we, and we see the only truly innocent person to ever live being hunted down by the guilty, to be arrested, to be unjustly tried, and then to be killed? There is no, no greater act of injustice because this man was spotless and pure, innocent, his, his heart so wholesome, way more than a child. And yet, they came for him. And we've been studying this, that when they came for him, he was no coward, he stepped forward. And he spoke the first word, who do you seek? And they expected him to run and step back. Instead, he steps forward and they fall down. And as they're on the ground, he says, whom do you seek? And even the most brilliant um, theologians have tried to wrestle with, how did he just say his name, ego a me, I am, and they fall to the ground? What is going on there? And... It's his name. I mean, it's just, 
It's the power of his name, and it's something prophetic about how all his enemies will fall down, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess when they meet their maker. It's something of a little picture of that we're seeing here in this garden. And they didn't realize, or all of them, I'm I'm sorry, did realize in that moment, uh, we're not in charge here. He's in charge. And they realized in that moment that he wasn't going to run. They were stepping back and falling, and he was stepping up. And they realized in that moment, he is head hunting. But just not for Malchus's head, like Peter was. Because Peter tried to chop off his head with that sword and just got the ear. Jesus had a different enemy to take his head out. That was the serpent. Fulfillment of Genesis 3, that he had to crush the head of the serpent. He was after a head in the garden. It was not Malchus. And so what did he do? He actually, he says, it says in the other accounts that he asked permission from the guards because he was already bound. And he said, just for a moment, permit me. Meaning, let, let go of my arms for a minute. And they did. And he reached down, grabs Malchus's ear, whether it fell on the ground or it was hanging off, we don't know, but he, he touched it and healed it. Why? Well, one last miracle to show this man was innocent. He was pure. He was not a candidate for death and execution. And they were guilty. And here's what they didn't understand. And what Jesus did understand. He came to die. He he said this in John 10, 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so he knew why the Father had sent him. And look at verse 11. It makes it so much clearer. This will be the focus for the rest of the sermon. Just the last part of that verse. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I have no outline today. I have no agenda than to just stare at that for the rest of the sermon. Those words. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me. And guys, we can search the world. Go get your Ivy League degrees. Search for every bit of knowledge you can find. Go to the libraries of Western Europe and all the great books that have ever been written. Go to Scripture itself. Read it. Study it. Examine all 66 books. You will find few phrases ever spoken and then recorded like that one. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, for modern people, I mean, just somebody walks off the street, never read the Bible before, that's not obvious what's in the cup. Right? We, let's not get ahead of this. But Jesus isn't just speaking to any random modern 21st century person. He is speaking to Peter and to the other disciples standing there who knew the Old Testament. They'd read the prophets that the cup was referring to something very, very terrible. 
So Isaiah 51, 17 says, Wake yourselves, wake yourselves, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Sounds terrible. Psalm 75, 8 For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. So for Jesus to talk about the cup isn't surprising. He's a Jewish man. These are prophecies in the Old Testament. To just refer to the cup not, not surprising, not shocking. For him to talk about the cup as being something terrible that someone would have to drink, not shocking. For, for Jesus to say that he believed the cup had been given to him to drink, a cup that only the wicked should drink, that, that's shocking. Why would this innocent, sinless man believe that he was the one supposed to drink the cup that God had designed for only the wicked to drink? Think about what Jeremiah the prophet said in Jeremiah 23.31. He says, you have gone the way of your sister, therefore I give you her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at. So he's describing this metaphorical cup. You shall be laughed at, held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation. The cup of your sister is Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out. Gnaw at its shards and tear your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And then two chapters later, Jeremiah 25 Verse 15, the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among you. So Jeremiah says, so I took the cup from the Lord's hand and I made all the nations whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings, its officials, to make them a desolation, a waste, a hissing, a curse, as at this day. And so God says to Jeremiah, this metaphorical language, take the cup out of my hand, Jeremiah, and give it to these nations to drink. Force it down their throat. They must drink it. And now we have in the garden this innocent Jesus saying, the Father gave the cup to me. Um, after City Group on a Wednesday, a, a bunch of us men were sitting around and um, we had just finished praying and one of the men, I don't remember why this was brought up, but Job, Job's suffering uh, was brought up. And... Um, the injustices that happened to him. And you remember uh, Job was called the blameless man in his generation. And he suffered horribly. He lost everything. 
I mean, really anything conceivable bad that could happen to you happened to him. Um, And then as the weeks went on, it got only worse as his friends began to tell him it's your fault. That's why you're suffering like this. And here's how Job described that suffering. He described it as poison. Drinking poison. And then later in Job, he speaks of another drink for the wicked, far worse than his own suffering that he described as poison. And he called it drinking of the wrath of the Almighty. And... You know, I've spent a few weeks just kind of meditating on this, uh, this cup and listening to some sermons. And it was interesting that you can actually get this wrong. <laughs> I didn't know you could not identify what was in the cup. Uh, but some, many were talking about all kinds of things in this cup. Anxiety, fear, worry, uh, you know, every kind of bad emotion. Um, but never got to the real ultimate meaning. Revelation 14 even says what's here. And this is uh, in Revelation 14, this is the cup given to Satan. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. I don't know if you see the connection there, but the cup and hell are quite closely connected. So that it wouldn't be wrong to say that the cup is hell in some sense. It also talks about in Romans 14 right after this, a a wine press of God's fury. And so the wine of the wrath in that cup, it says, came through a wine press. You know, a wine press where you smash... Uh, grapes, to, you, you don't get wine without the smashing of grapes. And so what's happening there? You have the wine, the wrath, connected with a smashing, with a grinding, with a crushing, um, pointing to this, it, it's hard to even say this publicly because it's just inconceivably horrible, that hell and judgment and wrath on the wicked is not just locking them up in a prison. It's crushing them. You see why it's shocking that Christ would say, this cup has been given to me by the Father? And it wasn't new to him. He knew about the cup. It says in verse 4, knowing all that was about to happen to him. He had always known about the cup. There's a... um, a famous painting by Holman Hunt, and it's titled The Shadow of Death. I don't know if y'all have ever seen this. It's a, it's kind of a, it's, it's a picture of inside of Jesus' workshop in Nazareth. Um, it's, it's kind of a picture inside of that. There's a window in the back and in the front, um, sun coming in the front. Jesus is standing in the middle of this workshop. He doesn't have a shirt on. Uh, it's summer, it's hot, he's, uh, there's wood shavings kind of on the ground. And um, as he's standing there, his arms are out like this. And so that sun coming in the front is casting a shadow on the back. And in the shadow on the wall, there's some nails, large nails. 
hanging where the, where the hands would be. And then, so you see this cross-like image on the wall, and then you see a woman standing kind of, or, or kneeling at Jesus' feet, looking that way at the shadow. And it doesn't show you her face, but you know who it is. It's Mary. And she's seeing something of a, a picture of Christ's suffering that would come later. Now, look, this is art, right? I, I don't think that's quite accurate. I don't know how much Mary knew about the crucifixion scene beforehand, but what we do know is this. Christ was aware. Can you imagine in the workshop, every day he, he was dealing with wood and nails. You think his mind didn't make the connection between what he would be suspended on and hanging from? He, he knew he, who he was. He knew what the Father had sent him to do. And if you only read our text, this passage, you could almost get the feeling that he's kind of joyfully embracing it. Like he's almost smiling. The cup. You know, like you don't really get a feel. But the other gospel accounts uh, help us to see that, and I'm going to use this word really carefully here. He hesitated to receive the cup. He knew he was sent to drink it. He agreed before the foundation of the world that he would come down and do it. But when the hour came, when it was getting very, very close for him to put his lips near that cup and drink, he hesitated. Luke 22 says, Jesus said this to the Father in that garden, Father, if you are willing, remove the cup. It's a hesitation. But not sinful hesitation. That's key. If it's a sinful hesitation, we've got no Savior. But it's a hesitation. He says, Father, if it be possible, is there anything you could do to remove this cup? If there's any way. He knew the suffering he was about to endure. And it wasn't, he wasn't hesitating because of the physical suffering. Let's just make that really clear. In no way do I want to downplay any of the physical suffering. We're about to spend weeks going through that. But that's not why he was hesitating. And you say, how do you know that? How do you know that's not what he was hesitating about? There's a few things we could say here. Here's the first one. Remember Jesus, what he said to his disciples about when they would in, in, uh, be suffering physically, persecuted, martyred even? He said, rejoice. He said, when that happens to you, rejoice. You've been counted worthy to suffer for my name. And now Jesus is in the garden Oh no, not anything but what's about to happen. You think it's, he's scared of the suffering? But, his, but all of his disciples are supposed to be rejoicing. That almost seems hypocritical. Ignatius, who was a bishop of Antioch in Syria in the second century, uh, was on his way to Rome, and he begged the church not to protect him. 
not to protect him or deprive him the honor. He said, let let's fire in the cross, let the company of the wild beasts, let the breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me if I might only gain Christ. Polycarp, only a few years after this, 86-year-old bishop in Samaria was burned at the stake and before the fire was lit, he prayed, O Father, I bless you that you've counted me worthy to receive my portion from among the number of the martyrs. These are Jesus' followers. And we could multiply the illustrations of martyrs having some sort of supernatural joy in that terrible moment to even rejoice in their persecutions and sufferings. Yet Jesus, at the face of the the Roman cross and the nails and the flogging, is scared? Even, oh, not, please, no. I, I think not. He was dreading something else. He was hesitating because of something infinitely worse. Uh, I think it was R.C. Sproul who said, because of the cup, he didn't even see the nails. Why was Christ sweating drops of blood in the garden? Was it the 500 Roman soldiers walking in? With their torches, the 300 temple guards with them. Knowing those spears, the swords. Was it the unjust trial he was about to endure? Why was he sweating drops of blood in the garden? Why the anxiety, the trembling? It was the cup. It was the cup. Guys, I really think there's a real sense in which we can say he didn't even fear the nails. He, he, He didn't even see the swords or fear the spears. He wasn't trembling over the cat of nine tails or the coming trial or being unjustly treated or being mocked and spit upon in the crown of thorns. This is not what haunted him. It was the cup. That the Father had given He knew he had to do the will of the Father. He was appointed to do the will of the Father. He could escape the will of man. If it was just Judas' will, just Pilate's will. But he couldn't escape the will of the Father because he wouldn't escape the will of the Father. What did he say? I and the Father are one. We are will the same. So that in that moment, he was able to eventually get to the point where he said, not as I will, but as you will, your will be done. And his will was swallowed up into the will of the Father. No one forced him to drink it. Rome did not force him to drink. The Jewish leaders did not force him to drink. Judas did not force him to drink. Fate as some impersonal force, did not fall upon him in that moment and force him to drink. It was the cup that the Father had given him. He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? One old commentator said, 
he recognizes none but the Father. It is always the Father. Always the cup which the Father had given. This was the cup that Jesus was sovereignly ordained to drink before the foundation of the world. It's not an afterthought. He doesn't realize it along the way. You just picture him, though, in the garden, and it's perplexing to us because he's really saying in this garden, Father, if you're willing, remove the cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And listen, and it says, There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, Everybody tries to figure this out. What is going on here? And what many have tried to say, I I disagree with this interpretation, is that uh, his human nature is wanting one thing and his divine nature is wanting another thing. And I don't think we need to divide the nature of Christ. He is the God-man. He was in that moment fully God. He was in that moment fully man. And this pause, this hesitancy is what it looks like when God the Son loves God the Father with all His heart, all His soul, all His mind, all His strength. And the thought of being separated from His Father. Which we can't comprehend. We can't. Many of us have lived most of our lives apart from the Father. Even as believers, we spend so little time enjoying the presence of the Father. We don't don't get this. But Jesus has eternally existed with the Father. All He knew was mutual love and self-giving and enjoyment with the Father. In fact, in heaven, if we get any joy and love in heaven, it's entering into the Trinitarian joy between the Father and the Son. The cup means that's gone. Even for a moment. And he couldn't bear the thought of it. As a man and as the Son of God. He didn't sweat drops of blood because his friends were about to betray him that night, but because his father would. He knew his own father would forsake him and turn his back on him. And he couldn't conceive anything worse. You don't smile at that prospect. One account said it grieved him to the point of death. Luke 22, again, in agony he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became drops of blood. Father, if you're willing, remove the cup. If there's any way, please, Lord, please do something besides this, anything but this. If there's any other way, silence from the Father because there was no other way. This had to happen. And you say, why did it have to happen? Why why did Jesus, and this is a legitimate question people have, why did Jesus have to drink the cup? Why not somebody else? Why did it have to be him? And the follow-up question to that is, how could him drinking that cup make all of his followers not have to drink the cup of wrath? 
And I would say because this man wasn't just a man. He was, as he said earlier that night, Ego of me, I am. This wasn't a normal death of a normal man. This is a sacrificial death of the Son of God. You know, in the Old Covenant, a sacrifice was acceptable to atone for sin if it was pure and blameless according to the law. In Christ, the sacrifice was pure and blameless. Unique about this sacrifice, He's man. He's God. A unique mediatorial sacrifice that can appease the wrath of a holy God and forgive the sins of man because he's the God-man. He alone could drink the cup. J.C. Ryle says, He speaks of his sufferings as a cup given to him by his Father and appointed in the everlasting councils of the Trinity. He says, Shall I not drink it? Would you have me refuse it? Would you permit me from dying for sinners with your sword, Peter? That's our context. And, guys, this is what I've been thinking about this week. How do you illustrate this? Anybody want, I mean, illustrations are helpful, right? We always like illustrations. They really do help us. Um, I heard one preacher give this illustration. This preacher is... Passed away about 20, 30 years ago, but he was preaching a campaign in uh, London. And he was walking the streets one day, one afternoon, and apparently somebody knew him. He was a well-known man. He was walking the street, and this poor woman uh, says to him, Sir, will you come in for tea? And he's like, well, I'm busy. I've got to be at this place. And she goes, I knew it. You only eat with the rich. You only dine with the wealthy. You would never come into a poor woman's house and have tea with me. And so he goes in, and it's just disgusting. Like, there's trash everywhere, animal droppings, nothing's clean. The smell of it is near unbearable. And she walks over and uh, grabs out of her sink full of dirty dishes and mold and grabs a cup and grabs some tea that's molded and old and begins to pour it in the cup and hands it to him. And for the sake of love, and the preacher said, for the sake of love and for the sake of Christ, I put the nasty thing on my lips and drank it. And I I heard that and thought, how dare you? Compare that cup to this cup. You cannot. You cannot. How do we bring down what Christ experienced and try to apply any situation or suffering in our life to His? John Murray said, Perish the presumption that dares to speak of our Gethsemanes and our Calvaries. It is trifling with the most solemn spectacle in all of history. A spectacle unparalleled, unique, unrepeated, unrepeatable. Here we are the spectators 
of a wonder to the praise of the glory of which eternity will not exhaust. It is the Lord of glory, the Son of God incarnate, the God-man drinking the cup that given to Him by the Eternal Father, the cup of woe and of indescribable agony. And He says, we should never call something. Note to myself, to all of us, my Calvary or my Gethsemane. Our worst experiences, all combined, do nothing to illustrate this. So what do we do? Um, I was going to leave it there. And then I was, uh, I had a really busy week this week, probably, probably my busiest week of the year. In between uh, events and, and different uh, meetings and things, I just tried to think about this cup and think about this. And, and so I'm at a graduation ceremony on Friday uh, for the school my kids are at, and we're singing the doxology. And the thought comes to my mind. There is a biblical illustration. It's not perfect, but it is a biblical illustration to help us understand Something of this, and I want to end just putting us in this passage, if you'll flip over to Genesis 22. Abraham and Isaac. Has no small parallel. To what Christ says about the cup from his father. Verse 1, God said to Abram, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey. It doesn't say this, but I think he probably kissed his wife, but didn't say anything to her about what was about to happen. How could you explain what was about to happen? He took his son Isaac, it says, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place for which God had told him. And on the third day, so I think this is a three-day journey that he's taking. I mean, let me pause for a second. Um, Danish, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard actually wrote a whole book on this moment um, about Abraham's anxiety. And the anxiety of this whole uh, moment. And he talks about the intense emotion that Abraham would have felt as God tells him this. As he takes his son out of the house. As he leaves his wife. As he begins to cut the wood for the sacrifice. Just the anxiety of, of, of trying to do the will of God. When it's hard. Is what Kierkegaard was getting at. And many people talk about Abraham's faith. Right? you got books and sermons about this. Uh, Everybody talks about Abraham's faith in this moment. What I would like us to focus on is Isaac. What about Isaac's faith? What what is Isaac doing here? Look at verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife and they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. He said, here I am, son. 
He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both of them together went. And when they had come to the place for which God had told them, Abram built an altar there and laid the wood on the altar and bound his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, fast forward. There's another only son with wood across his shoulders on a different hill and his father's hand is raised up. But there was nobody there to say, stop! I have another sacrifice. Don't kill your son. Because Isaiah 53 said, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. When his soul makes an offering for sin. Guys, on the cross, the father killed his son. With the cup. Psalm 75, 8. In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. He pours out from it all the wicked of the earth shall drink it to its dregs. Instead of giving that cup to all the nations in that moment, God took that cup and put it to His Son's lips. And His Son willfully, voluntarily, out of love for you, drank it. That is no tragedy. Spurgeon said the whole of the punishment of his people was distilled into one cup. No mortal lip might give it so much a solitary sip. When he put it to his own lips, it was bitter. But his love for his people was so strong that he took the cup in both hands. And at one tremendous draught of love, he drank damnation dry. He drank it all. He endured it all. He suffered it all. So that now forever, there are no flames of hell for them. No racks of torment. Their eternal woes gone because Christ drank the cup to the dregs. What do you think he meant on the cross when he said it's finished? He didn't have to go to hell to keep suffering for sins. He suffered for those sins on the cross. He drank the full cup on the cross of Calvary. Do you believe that? That He took your wrath, your cup, your hell, 
And do you believe that he drank all of it? That last phrase is important, isn't it? All of it. Look at this prophecy in Isaiah 51, 22. It says, thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause for his people. Behold, I have taken you. I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of wrath. You shall drink it no more. Who's that about? Anyone who drinks, who Christ drinks the cup for. So when you come to this table in a minute, and you hold the cup, one thing that should go through our minds is that verse in Isaiah 51, you shall drink the cup of wrath no more. It'll never happen. I want to uh, actually move us into the Lord's Supper. Um, Kent, you can lead us into this in a minute, but I'll just uh, prepare us for it. Um, a brother asked me in the, in the church recently, he said, um, what, what is this actually, like what happens when we take the supper? I mean, we do this every week. What happens? And I gave him a longer kind of more nuanced theological answer, but I'll say this to us right now. When we, when we drink this and eat this, we, it says, proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We proclaim He drank our wrath and He's given us a different cup now. It's not a cup of wrath. That is not a cup of wrath. Right? It's... it's in uh, Corinthians, I believe Paul says it is a cup of blessing. He says, raise up the cup of blessing. It's a cup of salvation. It's a different cup. And it's only for those who've submitted their lives to Christ and His church, demonstrated through baptism. And so when we come up here, we, we come down the, the aisle we get the elements and we, we put our mind on the blood and on the body. And we think about what He accomplished. And as we think about and believe this was for me, for my sins, for the forgiveness of my sins, we proclaim something. We proclaim our faith until Christ comes again. And that's not a small thing. And yes, there's other things that happen when we take this, but that's a big one. And there's something else. When we come here, we don't just look backwards at the cross. We also look forward to the coming kingdom because Christ said, I will drink this with you anew in my Father's kingdom. And so when we come together and you're not just by yourself drinking this, but you're with God's people, you think forward. And you think we're not drinking the cup of wrath in heaven. It's the cup of blessing. It's the cup of salvation. It's with His people. It's celebratory. We wrestle. Do I, am I somber in this moment? Do I rejoice? You know, which one is it? Do we, how do we, what's the posture? You rejoice with trembling. I think that's the best phrase. You rejoice with trembling. Church, if you would take a few moments 
uh, pray to yourself, prepare yourself for the supper. Um, I'll just give you a moment. As you're ready, you can come down the aisles. The brothers will be here to pass out the elements. And then Kent will come up and lead us in the passage and in the taking of this. Take a few moments and pray.